Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. When Sandy Grace was in grad school, she went running a lot. And I would take that time to either run with nothing, so no audio, and think, or I would listen to podcasts. And one podcast in particular that she listened to was called Inside Renewable Energy. From what I remember, the podcast was hosted by a gentleman named Stephen Lacey, and it covered really dorky energy topics like geothermal power, solar power, residential solar, distributed energy. And I was one of the dorks who listened. Kreis was studying energy policy at the time, so listening to the show supplemented her coursework. When I would listen to the podcast, it was just a more accessible way for me to understand what the current energy ecosystem looked like. Plus, the host had a very, very suave voice. Ah, now we get to the heart of it. The host said smart things and sounded hot. The voice on the other end of the podcast actually had something to say. And that's why I listened. I needed to know more from this person. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on the show, we explore the expanding universe of podcasts to bring you enlightening conversations. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. Sandy Grice wasn't just content to listen to the show, Inside Renewable Energy. She wanted to know the host, Stephen Lacey. So she dropped him an email about geothermal energy. Now, in my experience, the best wooing does happen under the guise of geothermal energy. It's true. And Stephen wrote me back and said something along the lines of, these are great questions. I'd love to connect. If you want to grab a drink, I'll be in town. I'll have a friend with me. So the two met for burgers and drinks, and quickly, energy became the farthest thing from their minds. I remember seeing her, and we locked eyes. I had no idea what to expect. She had no idea what to expect. And despite our differences, there was absolutely something there. That's Stephen Lacey, by the way. I knew instantly that there was something extraordinarily important about this person who I was meeting. I actually, like, I think I fell into his eyes. I know that sounds like really, really cheesy <laughs> saying it. You're right. But, it, it but, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. But it was absolutely love at first sight. But here's the bummer. Sandy and Steven didn't live in the same city, so they only had that one evening together. And that was the last time I saw Sandy for many years, for eight years. No, no, Stephen and Sandy, this cannot be. I won't accept it. I just figured our paths would cross again at some point. Uh, We were in the same space. And then life just happened. But of course, that's not the end of their story. We'll check in with them in a bit to see if they actually end up together. Cliffhanger. But first, we're going to shift away from truest love for a bit. In 2014, a Ferguson, Missouri police officer fatally shot unarmed teenager Michael Brown. In the weeks and months that followed, the state was racked with protests and riots. But when the media packed up and the politicians moved on, that's when the real conversations about change began. Journalists Camille Stanley and Tim Lloyd have been a part of those conversations. They co-host We Live Here, a show about race and class in a post-Ferguson world. 
In many ways, the recent protests here in St. Louis are a reminder of a national wave of outside efforts to change policing and the criminal justice system. But in today's episode, we're coming at it from a different perspective. We're zooming in on the enduring quest of black officers in St. Louis who've been trying for decades to change the system from the inside. Camille Stanley and Tim Lloyd, hosts of We Live Here. Welcome to The Big Listen. How's it going? How are you? It's going it's going well. How's it going for you? Good. Good. So um so your uh your show, We Live Here, um, was born out of I think the turbulence of St. Louis in the wake of the Michael Brown shooting three and a half years ago in Ferguson, Missouri. Right. Um right. what were you seeing in your community and and around the country at that time that that inspired the show? Well, you know, early on sort of the name we live here is rooted in sort of the sense that when the national media descended on St. Louis, they didn't really convey sort of some of the nuance of racial divisions and class divides in in St. Louis. And and that once, you know, the sort of the news cycle moved on to whatever was going to come after that, that the sort of the sense of having a deeper conversation about those divides and how they play out in real people's lives was just going to go away. Mm -hmm. And that it was sort of up to us in some respects our St. Louis Public Radio felt like it was up to them to create some kind of a space to sustain a conversation Mm -hmm. and it was only supposed to last a year but here we are three years later you know one thing I I I like about the show is that while it's rooted in the St. Louis area the themes are pretty universal but why do you think St. Louis is a a good setting for a show like this I think our show could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it feels um, it feels universal to people. And I think that's why we do have listeners who who are from all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it being set in St. Louis gives people a sense of an anchor. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of podcasts. Tim and I joke about this. They sound like they're from like nowhere land. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, they sound like they're from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or people who pretend that they're in Brooklyn. Let's just lay it out on the table. Let's just put it out there, right? And so, you know, our podcast has a sense of place. We talk about this place in a way that insiders would talk about the place because Mm -hmm. so we're we you will hear like street names and neighborhood names and things like that, which gives people something to hold on to. St. Louis is an interesting place because it has this identity crisis. Mm -hmm. It's way more Southern than it wants to admit. Mm -hmm. And it's way less Western than it wants to be. And so its position kind of in the country and its place in history, it is significant in terms of this country's racial history. I mean, you know, Dred Scott and Shelley versus Mm -hmm. Kramer um, and uh, redlining and Mm -hmm. restricted deed covenants and all these sorts of ways that people tried to... uh, deal or not deal with race in this country, they there's a lot of strands here in St. Louis and a lot of history here mm-hmm. in St. Louis. You said that, you know, St. Louis is a place that is, is more Southern than it would admit and less Western. Can you explain that a little bit more? The, the, the contours of the place, I think, get lost for coastal folks. Mm-hmm. So I have the benefit of being raised in Michigan, but having lived for several years in the South. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got here to St. Louis, ironically, I had just come, I just moved from the South. Um, I was in Florida for, for a little bit. And the conversations that uh, 
we were having in Florida around race and stuff. I was there when Trayvon Martin happened, mm-hmm. and my job before this was to um, investigate racial disparities in city governments and mm-hmm. police departments. And so um, the conversations were very similar, right? Mm-hmm. We were having conversations, too, about body cameras and, and how police were, are, are killing black and brown people in this country. But the nuance when I got to St. Louis was that the rest of the country was worse than they were. Right. And so people would say things to be like, yeah, but we're not like we're not like the South or anything. Right. And my response, <laughs> my response was, yeah, it's worse, <laughs> you know, because I think the the South has had its dirty laundry sure. hanging out there for so long. And so I think you there's a lot more just clear eyedness in some ways about race or at least in the conversations that people have. And you kind of know where people stand mm-hmm. in the Midwest. What happens and in particular in St. Louis, there's a sense of like um, I think Tim calls it like Midwestern niceness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the the problems are still here. It's just that it feels more sometimes the conversation can feel more stunted and it mm-hmm. can feel um much more behind than other places in the country. Right. I I, I think there's been a lot of talk in recent years um, about allyship and what that means. Um, And you all did some reporting on that, um, which I appreciated. And and first, so I'm wondering what what an ally or what being an ally means to you both. Hmm. It has to do, I think you you probably need to... uh, have a little bit of empathy in order to be an effective ally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that allyship is is inherently inherent to that is also recognizing that there's a line. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, stay in your lane, um, run by my side, mm-hmm. but don't try to, you know, but don't cross this line. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think um, empathy is sort of at the core of my, I think, understanding of what an ally and being a good ally is, you know, this, the, the idea of, of scooting over and making sure that there's room for someone else at the table. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's kind of like when, like, you know, you got to know, like, when to shut up, right. like, when to show up and, like, when to step aside. Right. Yeah. Right. So on, on that episode on allyship, you guys gave a quiz, an ally quiz written by <laughs> uh, racial justice <laughs> activist Amy Hunter. Um, The questions that I wrote were questions that I often hear other white people give each other, um, but also questions that they will, like, talk to me about, right? So, do you know who Melissa Harris-Perry is? Like, I do. How about Ida B. Wells? I'm like, are we black-facting this? Because I know, like, a lot. Not because I'm black, but because I actually do this for a living. Knowing this, we were really interested in what questions Amy would put on her quiz. And uh, so were Jenny and Liz, who are taking this quiz, And we're guessing probably you guys are interested to know what questions Amy wrote as well. So we're just going to get out of the way and listen as both Liz and Jenny take the quiz in separate studios. Have you ever told someone that you know someone else black so they know you have a black friend? Uh, Definitely not, but I have heard that before. I can't think of an instance where... I did that. But I can also think I can think of times of me thinking that's something I could do and then being like, why would I do that? 
I took the quiz myself. Um, yeah. The the questions were amazing. Like one of the questions was, "Do you have more Black Lives Matter T-shirts than Black friends?" <laughs> I thought, <laughs> right. "Oh God, who is that person?" But yeah. Amy made that quiz based on real interaction. She does a lot of training and stuff mm-hmm. here. Those are like coming out of like real scenarios and real conversations and real questions um, that she sometimes gets, and certainly things that. I have encountered before, not all of them, clearly. Right. I have had somebody touch my hair here in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and that was a pretty jarring and not great experience. I would think that in 20, this would have been in 2017, right. that don't you know better? Clearly, right. there are people who don't. The question, so. <laughs> right. The question on the quiz was, have you ever gently brushed up against a black person's hair so you could feel it on the low? And of course, you realize it would be rude to ask to touch it, which is why you have to do it secretly, which is bananas to me. I would I would love <laughs> to talk to that person who said yes to that. The other thing with this ally quiz um, that I just think is fascinating is and this is a point that Amy makes is that even if you take the ally quiz out of it, right, um, we are all the time testing and quizzing each other, I feel like. Right. I mean, even if it's not just around race and class, like, we all just kind of subtly, like, give each other, like, people are testing each other. And, mm-hmm. and people want to know. <laughs> I, I find this a lot, you know, from, from white people. Like, they, they want to know. Like, they want to be reassured, mostly. Yeah. Um, but so, like, this kind of um, social jockeying happens in our lives we just don't call it like an actual quiz and so that was you know part of the point of that episode was to be like let's just put it on the table let's just like where do you stay like you're you're getting a grade you know like you're getting a grade on your allyship (laughs) but you know this idea of like people want to know or they want to like show you you know that's where you have people who are like i've got a you know i've got my safety pin you know i've got my pink hat I've got like whatever, like this is my, this is how you know that I'm woke. You know, all that is happening, like just all around us all the time. We just don't call it an ally quiz. Camille Stanley and Tim Lloyd are the hosts of We Live Here from our pals at St. Louis Public Radio and PRX. To find out more about their show, check out biglisten.org. Now, when we last talked to our friends, Sandy Kreiss and Stephen Lacey from the top of the show, a podcast brought them together. But it wasn't enough to keep them together. Still, they stayed in touch. Sandy would reach out and say, hey, I'm seeing this for global battery pricing. What do your numbers tell you? And we would have formal exchanges about work-related topics. But the spark that we initially felt faded with time. But then, years after they first met, they had another chance encounter at a bar. And this time it went a little differently. Sandy says when she saw Stephen again, one thought went through her head. I'm going to marry this man. Really? That's what you thought? Absolutely. Yes. And just like that, Stephen packed up his life and moved to Boston to be with Sandy. Less than a year after the pair reconnected, Stephen proposed. In 2017, the couple married. But while they were planning their nuptials, a light bulb went off. The whole marriage process sounded like good fodder for a podcast. And I just told Stephen that we had to document this and 
we sat down and we hit the record button. So we recorded us telling our parents, our budget conversations with our parents, people's expectations. My mother grew up very Catholic in, in Latin America. Are you getting married in a church? Are you going to have a real wedding? We we had no idea where it was going to take us. But when you make these personal decisions and have a recorder there kind of hidden, uh, you end up capturing a lot of interesting personal moments that when you listen back to them, they make you cringe. But they're definitely common experiences, I think. The couple plans on releasing their wedding podcast later this year. They're provisionally calling it Wedded. Apparently, Till Death Do Us Part was already taken. It's nice to enter marriage with a creative project that you have together. And I think that's really what we want to strive for in our marriage is to like build something together and to work on projects and to have something that we can actually mold artistically and create together. Well, you know what I always say, the couple that podcasts together stays together. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to chat with singer-songwriter Laura Veers about the pressures of being a touring musician and a parent. There is that element, for sure, where some parents feel like, you know, going on tour is a break. Um, But I think the dark side of that is the feelings of guilt. But first, we'll hear from investigative reporter Annie Gilbertson about a string of officer-involved shootings in L.A. by the same officer. Most officers don't get into any shootings, never never fire their gun at someone. Um, you know, and if they, they do get into shootings, we're talking one or two shootings at most is what experts have told us. Um, so this is, it's uncommon. That's coming up next. Stick around. This is NPR. My name is Linda Hollyfield, and I'm from Dillon, Montana. I would like to recommend a podcast called Threshold, and it is about the bison controversy in Montana and actually with a lot of the Native American communities that would like to take control of the bison so they can continue their traditional ways. Hi there. Hello. I was wondering if I could ask you a couple of questions. I'm a radio reporter, and I'm working on a story about the National Bison Range. Oh, right. Okay. We're just looking for rattlesnakes. (laughs) Oh, you're looking for rattlesnakes. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm with Jane Heppel and her husband, Bob. We had all pulled over at a highway rest stop where you can look right into the National Bison Range. This is a beautiful... And it's an amazing podcast. It actually, if you feel strongly about this sort of thing, it brings tears to your eyes. So I hope you give it a listen. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And shout out to our friend Linda in Montana for giving us a bell. Well, if you're listening to a podcast that feels really close to your heart, let us know about it. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. We are always keen to hear from you. For the past few years, police shootings have been very much in the news. And one of the many questions those police shootings bring up is the question of accountability, Whose job is it to police the police? Investigative reporter Annie Gilbertson wanted to find that out. We hire officers to keep us safe, to come ready and willing to face danger on our behalf. What happens when they cross the line? In the last few years, we've heard many accusations of officers abusing their power, planning evidence, lying, shooting recklessly. Rather than enforcing the law, these officers were accused of disregarding it. 
But it's one thing to accuse an officer of misconduct. It is another to prove it. In the series Repeat, Gilbertson looks at the case of a California sheriff's deputy who shot four people in the span of seven months and managed to remain on the job in the wake of the shootings. Andy Gilbertson, host of Repeat, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. All right. So first, can you give us a sense of how common um, law enforcement shootings are that the type that you're reporting on? Because to me, four shootings by one sheriff's deputy in seven months seems like a lot. But I am not um, in law enforcement, so maybe that's not. Most officers don't get into any shootings, never, never fire their gun at someone, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and if they they do get into shootings, we're talking one or two shootings at most is what experts have told us. Um, So this is it's uncommon to have a string of shootings, um, especially um, it stuck out to us because they were so close together. According to Billups and official records, the crime went down like this. Billups kicked in the back door and ransacked the house, tossing things over, throwing open drawers. He stole jewelry, a wad of cash, money from a little girl's piggy bank. She had slowly been saving, dollar by dollar, for her big quinceanera party. Someone saw him. And the neighbor, she seen me going in her neighbor's house. When I came out, she had already called the police. The police was there. Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies said they spotted Billups leaving the house. Light-skinned black guy, early 30s, blue sweater. He just screamed, and he said, put your hands up. And I turned around and took off running. Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza stood on the front sidewalk, his partner nearby. Deputy Nzunza aimed his long shotgun. And that's when he just started shooting. So then what was it about this particular issue that raised your uh, investigative antennae? Well, I think asking about multiple officers who have been in multiple shootings as a way to get at the question of how officers are being held accountable. Mm -hmm. And that's a question we've been deeply interested in since we started reporting on officer shootings in about 2015. To me, that's like, it's been really the crux of a lot of the debate you've been seeing nationally is, are officers being held accountable for police shootings? And so this is this was our window into that. Mm-hmm. What I found surprising um, in listening to all of your reporting on this was how much information was totally unavailable to you that seemed like it would be public personnel records or um, records at the events. Did that surprise you at all? Yeah. I mean, I had been record- reporting on police shootings in L.A. County for since 2015. So I'm used to being denied mm-hmm. access to records. And and in some cases, um, you know, California law won't allow it. So when it comes to what would be considered in an officer's personnel file mm-hmm. um, would be considered private. Um, this would be things like, uh, you know, disciplinary history, um, rulings about um, you know, misconduct, um, investigations. Um, in other cases, you know, say uh, each time an officer shoots at someone, whether whether they're, it's fatal or not, and there's just massive amounts of information that's collected, mm-hmm. statements from witnesses, statements from deputies, and, and um, you know, often that, that information can be made available to the public, but, um, you know, it's under the sheriff's department's discretion as how much to release and and I just have been denied most most every time. And yeah. it, it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult to fully flesh out answers to questions like, you know, did the sheriff's department investigate the claim that Tanel Billups made, which is that uh, Deputy Gonzalo Nzunza 
planted planted a gun. Right. Was, was that investigated? Right. At that time, I didn't know that they was going to have a gun planted on me and, and talk about I was shooting, I pointed a gun. I didn't know none of that was going to happen. I didn't see that coming. Over the weeks and months that followed, Billups developed a theory about this gun and the officer who accused him of pointing it. So this is a throwaway gun he found somewhere or he had somewhere or they planted to cover up. So because he was already in trouble for some previous stuff. He was already under investigation for some previous stuff, from my understanding. We'll get to that later. So this would look bad on him if it happened again. So he had to cover up. He had to cover up. He had to clear his butt because he he would have been in deep water then. So he claimed, oh, here, he had a gun. You can't do that. These things seem so hard to prove. I mean, it is like an actual sort of he said, she said kind of situation, right? And the other the person on the other side is a crime suspect or somebody who has committed a crime. And we don't often err on their side. Yeah, that was that was kind of going to be a tension, you know, throughout the podcast, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody that Deputy Gonzalo and Zunza shot at uh, was eventually incarcerated, um, you know, pled guilty. Right. I mean, does that mean that then they are, um, you know, discredited when they say that the shooting didn't happen the way the deputy said it did? Right. And and how is their background brought in? Um, in the investigation, and 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 that's all factored into the decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, how often are these officer-involved shootings prosecuted, at least in LA County? I mean, do they ever make it up to? Oh, I think it's been. I think it's more been more than seventeen years yeah. since we've had a wow. had an uh, officer who's been um, prosecuted for a shooting. Right. For a shooting, um, we just had a. We just actually had a slew of prosecutions, federal prosecutions from this scandal um, in 2011, a corruption case involving the sheriff's department. But um, but um, in terms of shootings, it's been I think it's more than 17 years now. And, um, you know, that was kind of one of the, the findings as, as we looked closer at the accountability question is that, mm-hmm. you know, often it's not the criminal uh, justice arena in which these shootings are being adjudicated. Mm-hmm. So much of of the decision making about what use of force is acceptable is falling to these local officials in, in a process that is largely, you know, shut off mm-hmm. from public view. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder what the recourse is, if any, um, for the shooting victims in this particular case, Gonzalo and Zunza. I'm just wondering, can they take any kind of legal action? The defendants, yeah, the, the suspects who. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it depends. I mean, there's there's some statute that limits sort of you know whether you can take civil action if you're accused of a crime. So mm-hmm. it would be difficult to bring forward a claim of excessive force against a sheriff's deputy if you yourself had been accused or convicted of a crime. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, you know, the arena in which you can challenge um, what the officer said happened is is in criminal court. Mm-hmm. Right. So if they're if they're accused of a crime, you know, and of course, these are these are shooting suspects that have lived, then they, they have they have the opportunity to defend any accusations against them in court. Um, have you heard from the L.A. County Sheriff's Department about your reporting? Oh, you know, often on to stay in touch. <laughs> um, I mean, have they have they uh, responded in any meaningful way? 
You know, I think as we got close to publication, you know, we were very much so in contact with the sheriff's department. I mean, had been for months Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, too, just, you know, running every claim made, um, questions that we had by the sheriff's department. Uh, one of the things they offered was was an interview with the sheriff himself, which appears at the very end of the the podcast run, in which I ask him sort of these questions that we've raised over over the course of the investigation. Right? You know, did you investigate this claim that Tanel Billups made that this deputy planted a gun? To sort of overall how the system's working, they've promised to look into it. At least the shooting of Tanel Billups. Right. That's what they've. That's what they've communicated to me. Um, where is the sheriff's deputy Gonzalo Nzunza now? You you tried to talk to him, but with no luck. Oh yeah, wait, I I had the same question. I don't. I think you need to listen all the way to episode six. I think that's kind of just like one of the last questions I I'm trying to answer. So I would say to stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um, Annie Gilbertson, host of Repeat. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us and talking to us about the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Annie Gilbertson is the host of Repeat from our pals at KPCC in Los Angeles. To find out more about the show, hit up biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk to singer-songwriter Laura Veers about how being a parent informs her music. My connection to life and death feels more profound. My sense of the preciousness of life has become enhanced because I know what's at stake if I lose a child. That's up next. Stay put. This is NPR. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about On Point, the NPR show where we take you behind the headlines. On Point talks with newsmakers and real people about issues that matter most. Listen to On Point now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Leo calling from Connecticut. My absolutely favorite podcast is Adam Carolla. Oh my God, the the guy is so witty. He's got a team of comedians with him and it's just biting, smart, satire, and sometimes just laugh out loud stuff. So and I thought I brought a mouthpiece in because I thought it'd be funny. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but not that you need a mouthpiece, but <laughs> oh, no. Wait, who just walked in the door? My dad. He's pissed about the the soul stepmom business. <laughs> hey, hey, dad, dad, dad talks through his trumpet. So Adam Carolla, rock on. You are the best, and I hope other listeners will tune in. They'll surely enjoy the experience. Thank you. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and thanks to Leo in Connecticut for his recommendation. Well, if you want to hear your favorite podcast on the radio, call us up on the pod line. The number is 202-885-POD1. Singer-songwriter Laura Veers has recorded 10 studio albums and has toured the country with musicians like Katie Lang, Nico Case, and The Decemberists. Plus, she has her own record label, Raven Marching Band. But Veers has another job. She's a mother to two kids, and that other role both informs and complicates her music making. So much so that she started a podcast all about working musicians who are also parents. 
It's called Midnight Lightning. Here she is talking to legendary studio bassist Carol Kay about dealing with her teenage daughter. If Peggy went on a date, she had to be home by, by 10 or 11, something like that. You know. In fact, in fact, th- there was one date that she had with a boyfriend, and it was a musician in, in the studio work, you know, so I thought he'd be okay. You know. and, and it was t- t- 12 o'clock, and so I called him up. I said, you get her home right away or you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> And so she 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 laughs. Boy, yeah, watch out for mama. He 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 got me home immediately. (laughs) And the funny thing is is that I worked with him the next day. Laura Veers, host of Midnight Lightning. Welcome to the Big Listen. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me. All right. So first, tell me when did you get into music as a career? I graduated from Carleton College in 1997, and during my years in college, I had started playing out and writing songs and making a little four-track recordings. I'd say, you know, my, my climb was very s- incremental and slow, and it still is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... I have a mid le- mid-level career that I'm really happy with, so it's been working for me more or less for 20 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're not playing stadium shows yet? I mean, probably <laughs> after, after the next record comes out, I will, but yeah. <laughs> You'll just just slay in the stadiums. Like people are just gonna be trampling each other to get to you on the stage. I mean, I think that's pretty natural. That's just the kind of the arc. Right. It would follow the natural arc of success. For right, me. right. It's like Beyonce. Who you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean she's opening for me on my next tour. So <laughs> on my sing, singer song. <laughs> Singer songwriter solo set after Beyonce. Right, right. And she's going to bring her kids along, um, and you guys are going to have a chat about. I mean, I'm her mentor for parenting. So, <laughs> right, right, exactly. When you're just like flying on the jet, you know, you're like, you're like, how do I strap this baby seat into this private I mean, jet seat? My baby has his own jet, so I don't need to worry about <laughs> strapping him in. Somebody else does that. Right. No, naturally. What was I thinking? I I have no idea. How much did your job factor into your decision, yours and your husband's decision to have kids? I mean, I waited till I was 36 and 39 to have my kids. I'm mm-hmm. done having them. I, now I have two and I'm happy with that. But mm-hmm. I'm glad I waited because we had built up our careers during our 20s and 30s. I had hit the pavement, not as hard as some musicians, but I was out for like four months a year. Mm-hmm. We were in our mid to late 30s. We were like, okay, well, now the biological clock is ticking. you got to decide about this. And I I basically put my foot down because I really wanted to do it. And not to say he didn't, but I think he was more realistic about the challenges that Mm -hmm. were in front of us. Not everyone wants to have kids and not Mm -hmm. every musician should. You know, there's still societal pressure to have children, but I do feel that it's waning. I -hmm. feel like there's more and more people who are feeling not so judged if they choose not to have children. You know, it used to be a thing like, you're not a real woman unless you have kids, you know? And that's just, I feel like it's still there somewhat, but not so much anymore. And also the stigma of having one child is going down. Right. So I feel like there is more freedom for people around this choice. Mm -hmm. One thing you talk about with a lot of your guests is the guilt that comes from um, leaving your children when you go on tour or taking your kids along with you? And what is your experience with parental guilt? 
I haven't had so much of it because I haven't done so much touring since mm-hmm. I've had children because I've been lucky to be able to live off publishing. Mm-hmm. You know, when I did my album Warp and Weft tour, I brought the infant and the three-year-old stayed with my parents and my husband. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did feel sad leaving the three-year-old, but it was only for three weeks. It wasn't mm-hmm. like terrible, you know, and he was with his other family members. Mm-hmm. Then when I went out with Case Langveers last year, it was seven weeks, which felt like a lot, mm-hmm. um, but it was three weeks and then a week off and then four weeks. And four weeks did feel like, dang, I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with them at all, you know, right. after four weeks away. But um, I also, on in that case, was like, this is clearly the right thing for me to be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, my career could take a turn for the better if I do this tour. And mm-hmm. it did. So and it's it was a money maker for us, which is also a consideration. You know, if you're going to go out on a tour and lose a lot of money, and you have kids, like that's a harder thing to stomach. Right. I feel like a lot of parents would love four weeks away. Like a lot of a lot of working moms would be like oh, four weeks away from my kids. Like, yeah. I mean, maybe after the first week, they'd be like, oh no, this isn't this isn't great. I I want to go back. Yeah. I mean. There is that element for sure where some parents feel like, a, you know, going on tour is a break. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that the dark side of that is the feelings of guilt, that they feel guilty for feeling happy that they're away from their kids mm-hmm. or feel guilty that their children really miss them or they got really sick and they weren't there to comfort them or they, they missed a first. Mm-hmm. They missed the child run, riding their bike for the first time. But I guess ultimately it all comes out in the wash, um, like... I don't remember those seven weeks. I did feel a little bit of guilt here and there, but it, I didn't really struggle with it because it wasn't like some musicians really have to be gone seven months of the year. Right. And that's a different level of guilt, I think, when you're mm-hmm. you're really missing the day-to-day life of your child's up growth. You're just right. not there. Have you noticed that parenting has deepened your work as an artist? I would say, I mean, I'd hope that it's deepened it. I think it's, I'm a very motivated, very driven writer. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll spend like four hours a day writing every day for a year and make like 116 songs and then pare them down to like 14 to make oh, a record. Boy. And that's been my process the whole time. <laughs> wow. But getting to that place of internal quiet where I can understand what I'm trying to tell myself what my muse is saying can actually be a lot more challenging now. So I think that that's made it more challenging, but at the same time, my connection to life and death feels more profound. And I'm not saying that if you don't have kids, you're not going to have a profound understanding of life and death. But Mm -hmm. I do feel that for me personally, my sense of the preciousness of life has become enhanced because I know what what's at stake mm-hmm. if I lose a child. Right. And um, that's the kind of deepest devastation I think a person can feel mm-hmm. is the loss of a child. And so you've got this heart running around outside your body all the time, yeah. in my case, too. Yeah. And so there's the, the stakes are higher. Mm-hmm. Have you have you learned any any little nuggets from these other amazing musician mothers you've you've had on your show? It was interesting talking with Roseanne Cash, the choices that she's made. Every woman that I've spoken to except for one has talked about guilt. Yeah. Do you think that you might have an extra dose because your dad was gone a lot and you didn't want to repeat that? That's actually very astute, Laura. I mean, 
I've never really talked about it in that way, but the truth is, is because my dad was gone so much when I was a kid, and it was so painful to my mother, and there was a deep rift and a longing for my dad. But, you know, if I, if I really tried to piece it out, I'd say the longing was because when he showed up, he wasn't really there because he was a drug addict, too. If he had come home and he was really there, that would have made all the difference in the world. So that's hard to pull apart. But, you know, still, even the healthiest guy in the world who's out 250 days a year, you can't raise kids that way. You just can't. You can't be present. You're not there. You're not. You're literally not there. And there was no FaceTime back then either. I liked hearing that because... I like it when history does not repeat itself mm-hmm. in terms of like a negative thing repeating itself in a cycle that just never ends. And mm-hmm. I think that's really great. I love to see that and hear about stories like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned about the choices people make to, even though they're a rock star in quotes, they're taking their kids to public school. You right. know, they've got a deep commitment to that community, mm-hmm. the community's feeling of being a citizen in a city. And yeah, I'm up on stage and people are screaming my name, but I'm dropping my kid off at the public school every morning. <laughs> you know, it's like, I love that. And then just seeing how some of the people who chose to go away for, for many, many months and um, kind of lost their connection to their partner, which mm-hmm. is another thing that really truly can happen when you make this choice. And that can be difficult when you're trying to raise kids. So mm-hmm. just noticing like it isn't easy to pull this off and to keep your marriage together and to keep your kids um, to keep a good connection with your children, but it's important. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting. I, I've learned a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. Just, just about, frankly, the, the million different choices that people can make and, and them being very honest with me about the difficulties that they've encountered along the way. And, and it's just, some of them, one of them made it sound easy, like it was no big deal, but most of them were like, yeah, this is really tricky, but it's totally worth it. Laura Veers is the host of Midnight Lightning. She is also a musician. Her new album, The Lookout, drops April 13th. To find out more about her work, check out biglisten.org. We've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Uh Uh-oh. But before we scoot on out, it's time for another installment of... Wait, what? Have you ever happened upon a podcast and thought to yourself, Wait, what? This is a podcast? How simultaneously random and delightful. Well, you're not alone. We have two. So we wanted to showcase some of the more offbeat shows in the podcast universe. Our guide for Wait What will be our intrepid intern, Camila Salazar. What's up, Camila? Hey, not much. Uh, Okay, so what do you have for us? Well, I think the best way to start off today's Wait What is to let our host introduce himself to you. Okay. Pong Widjok, Joel Anderson. It's Klingon Kolvidjot. No, what is that? That is not a person (laughs) saying their name. Yep, that's uh, Klingon. <laughs> no. So that's Joel Anderson introducing himself in the Star Trek language, Klingon. Uh, Joel's a software engineer by day and Trekkie by night. He hosts a short podcast called A Klingon Word from the Word. And he's an old school podcaster. He's been doing this for over 10 years. A Klingon Word from the Word. What is Mary's example? Listen to what the Bible says from Luke. At Mary Polta. 
Chotch Dotch Vamme sayings, pondering Chach Dach Dajti. Listen to the word. It helps us navigate the stars and beyond. Is he reading the Bible in a fake Star Trek language? Yeah, what? correct. <laughs> Come on. Yep, he's translating the Bible to Klingon, like the whole thing, the whole Bible. Okay. He's been working on this for about 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, yep, but... And then most of the people who find his show, you know, they don't care that much about the Bible part. Um, it's the Klingon that they're focused on. And since he's an expert, he gets a lot of people reaching out to him. You know, requests for how do I translate this for my tattoo... There's a phrase, today is a good day to die, which which comes up in Klingons. And I, I usually try to suggest that maybe that's not the piece of ink that they want to have on their body forever. You know, there was a person also asking for tips on dog training. They wanted to use Klingon to train their dog. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, um, I think another story he told me that I really liked was even the Australian government reached out to him. Like in the show Star Trek, they named one of their starships the USS Janolin after one of their famous caves. So the Australian government wanted to give them a little nod and like a little thank you and offer their audio tours in Klingon. And they reached out to him and he didn't feel capable of translating it. He didn't feel like he was fluent enough, so he uh, he referred them to another Klingon scholar and he the, got flown no, down no, under. No, 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 no. Come on, this is not a real language. Right. They can't possibly have a vocabulary in the way that long-established languages do. I mean, you'd be surprised. There's a very, very extensive vocabulary for this language. Like, okay, so the people who study these languages are called xenolinguists. Technically, a xenolinguist is someone who studies an alien language, so something that's not of this earth. Right. Technically, all those alien languages right now are fictional, but right. that's, <laughs> that's but that just could a, change. Who could knows? Change. It's a minor detail. Right, minor. <laughs> a lot of times, people will talk and say, "Well, why don't you learn a real language?" And I always say that Disneyland, you know, is completely made up, but it certainly is a real place. It's a place where you can go. It's you know, it's certainly something you can you can uh, enjoy and be part of. And Klingon is sort of the same way. It is a real language, even if it's made up. Sure, sure. So, so do you did you get to understand why this guy was so interested in the Klingon language? Yeah, I mean, he loves Star Trek so much, and this is just the easiest way for him to connect to this universe that he loves. A person can't build a starship, but but you can learn a language. That, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I mean, although I'm I'm guessing that there are some real like mega fans out there who have tried to build. A, a starship. Yeah, I had this, my 11th grade English teacher, he was also Trekkie, and he would vent to us about how his friends, who were also really Trekkies, would just get in these, like, hours-long arguments about how the science, like, from one episode didn't add up to the science that they talked about in another episode. Oh, and he continuity would just, issues. Right? And he would just get so frustrated and tell his students, the science doesn't even exist. The science oh, isn't even real. And so that's kind of what that reminds me of. <laughs> I love I love people's crazy different hobbies. I mm-hmm. love it. I love it. Okay, okay. so in talking with, uh, with our friend Joel, did mm-hmm. you... Did you learn any Klingon yourself? I did. Actually, he translated your catchphrases for us. America, Yakim, Yitzhak. So, <laughs> so that's keep listening, America. Yeah, literally translated. It's America. Pay attention. Keep on listening. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, what? 
Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we'll slip slide into your feed automatically and you won't even have to lift a finger. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Hear Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. If you want to drop us a love note, you can also email us at biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, Camila Salazar, and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was placing bets on who will leave the White House next. Ugh, who will it be? I don't even know. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Sandy Kreis and Stephen Lacey, the now married couple who initially met through a podcast. Their meet-cute story is definitely a bit unconventional, but they're into the novelty of it. Half of our relatives and friends don't even know what podcasts are, and then they find out that, and then we tell them the story and they start listening to Stephen's podcast, and that's like the only podcast they listen to, even though they're not energy people. Right, they have no idea what yeah. he's talking about. Right, and then, and then some of our friends are fans, you know, and so, but now they're friend fans. And then, you know, other people just think it's cool. People meet on online apps now. Like, what's the difference, really? The story definitely became cooler in recent years when more people actually know know what a podcast is. Podcasts, bringing people together in all kinds of ways. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.